VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. With each episode, we'll sit down with the world's leading business leaders, entrepreneurs, and political figures. It's a peek behind the scenes of global business, culture, and politics. A firsthand conversation with the people who shape the world's economy. If you don't feel smarter afterwards, then we aren't doing our job. Robert Kraft, the founder and chief executive officer of the Kraft Group, was a Patriots fan long before he was the NFL team's owner. He bought his first season tickets in 1971 for what was to him at the time the astronomical sum of $1,000. 23 years later, he bought the team for the again astronomical price of $172 million, the highest price ever paid for a sports franchise at the time. Bob Kraft is now worth more than $5 billion, and the Patriots have won five Super Bowl championships during his ownership. We sat down with him in New York to talk about how you manage superstar talent, that Deflategate scandal, and his decades-long friendship with President Donald Trump. Such a pleasure. My pleasure. Can I just say, starting off, uh, in case you don't know from my accent, <laughs> we drink water <laughs> from Massachusetts. This is a good Worcester gal. Good Worcester gal, right and, here. And, and I'll tell you something else that coming here, uh, you know, Mike Bloomberg is from Medford, Massachusetts. A little known fact. So, uh, and I always. Uh, Asked him every time I saw him, you know, you a Patriot fan? He doesn't, he's not into sports. He happened to be mayor of New York, so it wouldn't be politically correct. But I've never come into this building, and I, I have such respect for him and what he's created. So it's, it's a treat for me to be here with a Worcester gal in the Bloomberg building. I tell you, I know both my parents are from Worcester, born there. Um, it's such a treat for us, and I think maybe you guys in the audience don't know, but Bob doesn't really do that many interviews, so it's incredibly lucky for us to get this time here today, and it's a special honor for me. Full disclosure, full disclosure. Uh, born in Worcester, but grew up mostly in Chicago, so a sort of pseudo-Bears Cowboys fan. So uh, there's going to be no bias here tonight. Um, declaring those allegiances at the table. We've already talked about 1985 and the Super Bowl shuffle, and we've already gone through that. Uh, and the fridge. <laughs> I didn't own the team then, in the fridge. And the funky QB. Um, so thank you again for being here. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things tonight. We're going to talk about what Carol 
was talking about and the incredible success you have and what most people know about you. But I want to start, I want to go way back. I want to start uh, and go back to where you started, uh, Brooklyn, Mass. Brookline. Brookline. Sorry, I was in England for no, too I, long. I, there I, we go. I, I went to Columbia here. And uh, when, I, when I got on the elevator, they said, where are you from? I said, Brookline. Oh, you're from there, too. He's from Brooklyn. So I've got to make it clear. Exactly. Um, father was a dressmaker in Chinatown. Uh, you were scholarship. You got a scholarship to Columbia. Uh, went on to Harvard Business School. Started at Rand Whitney, based in Worcester. Uh, went on. Founded, you know, the companies that you did. Founded the company. Founded the sprawling mass that you did that Carol talked about. Now worth over five billion by the latest estimates. Uh, sounds pretty easy. Uh, but I want to hear about those struggles that you went through in your early years and the risks you took in terms of when you came out, going up through that trajectory. How you saw the companies you started as being part of the future. Well, um, you know, any business, first of all, like Michael, my older brother, um, <laughs> I love business. Um, and uh, growing up in Brookline, Massachusetts, I always dreamt about going to Harvard Business School. And um, we came from a family of limited financial means. So I would go over there starting in high school and talk with the uh, dean of the school and see what I had to do uh, to be able to get admitted right out of college. Um, and, you know, it's sort of listening to Michael the same thing he was driven by. I knew what, what I was passionate about. And um, so I try to go on a path to do that. Um, you know... Any business we're in, we try to stress quality and how do we differentiate from the marketplace. And to do that, you have to try to see things that other people don't see and take risks that other people aren't willing to do. So the real first biggest risk I ever took was going up to Newfoundland. Um, we were in the corrugated box business and had... Um, one big plant, a smaller plant. And I realized 60% uh, of our sales costs was really raw materials going to the paper mills. So I said, you know, you got to try to control a, a raw material supply so you could get the margin business. And um, I went up to Newfoundland. They uh, had a paper mill there that was in tough trouble. And we're, that industry is an the paper industry is an industry of big players. I hope no one's in it in this room, <laughs> but it's sort of like a cartel, and um, you know it, they try to uh, manage the business in a way where they take downtime and try to keep prices at a certain level. Um, so when you're a converter, you're paying very high prices even when the soft market. Anyhow, long story short. I went up there, I competed against these companies to take over this paper mill, probably the first biggest risk. And thank goodness there wasn't an internet because 
I, I made a guarantee to them that I would take the production of their new mill, whether I could, I guaranteed them sale of 200,000 tons. And the big paper mills who wanted this same mill couldn't, they wouldn't make that guarantee because in, in the bad times, they wanted to shut the mills that were least important to them. Anyhow, within six months of doing that, and I competed against Canadian companies, European, uh, and I made this guarantee, and I really didn't have the net worth to do it if, if they had done their proper checking. Um, <laughs> and I kept my fingers crossed. Uh, but what happened is Nixon was the president. He put in price freezes in the U.S., which meant people couldn't really export. And here I had the only new capacity coming out of Canada. And that allowed me to go to Korea, Iran, Europe. That, remember, this is in the 70s. Uh, and uh, before... Um, when you could go to Iran. When you go to Iran. I actually went seven times. And it was a great country and great people. But anyhow, that allowed me to make a lot of friends throughout the world and build this company today where we're doing, we're in 95 countries now and it all started off of that decision and then the timing happened right with Nixon and, and then it's the same thing with the Patriots if you want me to. Well, that's to good. well we're getting to that. I mean, putting, your, uh, putting more than your net value at stake is, is a theme we'll return to. We'll come to the Patriots, but. Everybody knows, uh, knows about the Patriots, but they, I don't think many of you in this audience will know actually about your first sports team. I've actually brought a prop, and it's this, the Boston Lobsters. Does anybody oh. know the Boston Lobsters? Um, world was... Team Tennis in the yeah. 70s. There's a great NFL films on this, which I, uh, which I think everyone should watch, but What's interesting in all the interviews I've watched with you, and you would talk about the lobsters, and you talk about that time, so many of the lessons you learned from that early franchise from, well, I'm going to let you talk about, but owning some of the things that's key to make franchise and having a superstar, you learn from the lobsters. And also, we got we to talk about the name a little bit, why it was the lobsters. So <laughs> wait, this is the 70s once again. And by the way, I apologize for having my back here. I, I hope I'm not being rude, but... Um, should I turn, or you yeah, got we can cameras? Get every angle. Okay, thanks. I, um, we love tennis. My wife and I and my kids all played tennis, and you, you know, we were crazy about it. And they start a professional tennis league, and I probably credit my experience there and the hard things that happened. If we've had success with the Patriots. In part, it's what the lessons I learned there. Um, first of all, there were 12 teams, I believe. Jerry Buss, who wound up buying the Lakers, owned the L.A. Strings. We owned the Boston Lob, you know, Lobsters. And we're <laughs> from New lobsters. England, so that's... Lobsters. Lobsters with our water. And... Um, you know, but I learned a lot. Uh, we played in a, an arena called Nick, Nickerson Arena, I, um, Walter Brown Arena at Boston University. And I would advertise 
and bring people in there to watch our tennis team. And uh, all the parking revenue and the concessions revenue went to the university. And I'm going, what kind of dummy am I? I'm advertising, I'm bringing them in, and all we're getting is ticket revenue. So, um, and then I learned uh, the importance of stars. And Jerry Buss had Chris Everett out there. And uh, am I dating myself? Do you guys know Chris no, Everett? No, no, no. Okay. No. I think I'm 35, but. Uh, <laughs> And, um, you know, Martina Navratilova defected to the U.S. And, by the way, Billie Jean King play, Billie Jean King and Virginia Wade play for the New York Apples, the team here. And so when Martina defected to uh, the U.S., she was living, actually, with Billie Jean, but her rights were with a guy in Cleveland. And uh, I actually... and. We were struggling to make money, but I paid $50,000 in 1975 to get the rights to sign her. And I did the trade, and then she came. We had Roy Emerson as our coach. She wound up winning Wimbledon and then coming to the Cape Cod Coliseum in Massachusetts right from Wimbledon. And it, was, it created quite a buzz, and we got a lot of notoriety. So I learned two things. You have to control your venue, and you have to have a star and a good coach. Um, we had a coach who was originally Eastern European, a great guy, great friend, but he couldn't communicate with women. It was, <laughs> let's say it's a different kind of society in Eastern Europe uh, in those days. And uh, anyhow, we, uh, we wound up okay, but... You know, the other thing I learned, and it's a good lesson in, in any business that any of you are involved in, that you're only, if you're in a partnership with other people, you're only as good as your weakest partners. Four of us made money and turned it around, but eight of the teams were not doing well. So I wound up, I decided we're getting out of this business because we couldn't make it fly the way we want. We paid every bill and and shut it down. And I kept the name. And then about seven, eight years later, sold it to someone. But Lobsters everywhere want their name back. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I learned a lot that prepared me for, do you want me to go into it? All right, well, well, let's, well let's, let's talk one little quick story that I heard about you, which is that uh, before you bought the Patriots, 1994, You'd been a season ticket holder for 23 years, since 1971. But the first time you went out and bought said season tickets, it was $1,000. And your wife, when you came home and told her you had spent $1,000 on season tickets for the Patriots, that she was uh, not too happy about spending that money, which... You've done a lot of homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Wister girls, no value. Uh, yeah, no, well, we were a newlywed couple, and um, I, I was passionate about football. I loved it, and we had four young sons, and it was something that I loved to do with them. Uh, and actually... I, I had the greatest wife, uh, a blessed memory. Um, but she loved Sundays because I'd always take my four boys to the games and, 
it was quite a trek getting there and parking. And so she'd go to the chick flicks. Uh, is that politically correct to say? Definitely, definitely. <laughs> and do the Sunday crossword puzzle in the time. She could finish it. She read four books a week. She was pretty smart. Um, and she loved Sundays because it was peace. We, we had three in diapers at once, all boys. So uh, she loved Sundays. When we went to the game, she never went to a game. So flash forward to 1994. And uh, the owner at the time, James Orthwine, he wants to, he wants to move the team. Uh, and you, are, you already own the Rice the Stadium. And you fly to St. Louis. And you say before you go, and this audience might not know this, but you said before you went, I have done my homework, you thought the team was worth $115 million. Well, my, I told my wife, um, I, well, can I put a pin in this? It's yes. Just so we'll go back to the lobsters. Having realized that I had to control the venue, um, I, just, I have, was passionate about buying the Patriots. And... You have a greater chance of being a starting quarterback in the NFL because there are 32 than owning the team in, in your hometown. And so knowing that I, if I ever had a chance, I want to control the venue, I got an option on the, in 1985, an option on the land, 300 acres of land for people who did the parking. It was owned by 12 different people. And I control that for 10 years. And then in 1988, as we discussed, yes. uh, the Sullivan family that owned the team sponsored the Michael Jackson tour. The Victory Tour. The Victory Tour. And they lost a lot of money and loaded uh, the old Foxborough Stadium up with debt, $48 million of debt on a stadium that cost $6 million. Um, long story short, I bought it out of bankruptcy competing against the previous owner of the team, Victor Kayam, the guy who owned the shaving company. Uh, he bid $18 million, I bid $25 million and got the stadium. So then I had an option on the land and the stadium. So we controlled all the revenue. It was the reverse of the lobsters except for tickets. The, <laughs> Mr. Orthwine had tickets. I had everything else. Um, and goes back to our good friends there. So they were going to move the team uh, to St. Louis, but they had to get out of my lease. And they offered us $75 million to move the team. And I said no. So my sweetheart said to me, Wait, you paid 25 for this old dump of a stadium. <laughs> They're offering you 75. You take it. You know, you'll find another team. Uh, but I remembered the Boston Braves, who was my love. That was my number one team who moved from Boston when I was a young kid. And I remember how sad I was. So I said, you know, I'm going to go out to St. Louis tomorrow. I'm going to buy the team. And she said, what are you going to pay? And I said, well, the right number is 115, but I'll probably go to 120, 122. And I, you know, I just want you to know. And um, does anyone? Do you guys know what he paid for the team in the end? 172. Which so, <laughs> but highest price at the time. I, 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 
I agreed to pay that 15 hours after I told her I was paying 115 to 120. <laughs> this is 1994. Um, she went bananas. Uh, it's the first time in our marriage um, that she questioned my wisdom. Uh, she started going to games. She said, I better figure out what's going on. Uh, and, well, I'll tell you a funny story. The day after we announced I'm buying the team, this is for New Yorkers in here, uh, our coach was Bill Parcells. And, um, well, I, 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 I told him I got a call for uh, tickets and... It was from the cardinal, and he said, you know, we're, every parish, every priest, every nun in New England's going to be praying for the <laughs> patriots. And I, so I told Parcells that, and he said, well, I, I had a priest in New Jersey who told me the same thing, and I said, Father, your prayers will be heard a lot better if the players are bigger and faster. <laughs> so that was that. So this same Coach Parcells, the night after I buy the team and pay the highest, that was the highest price ever paid for any sports franchise anywhere in ever. the world in 1994. And like it was 50% more than I told my sweetheart. So <laughs> the next night, I'm lying in bed reading a book. She's next to me, and the phone rings. It's Parcells. And he says, um, we should probably sign our left tackle. He's the one who protects the quarterback, who was Drew Bledsoe. And um, I said, okay, well, how much is that going to be? He said, well, it'll be about $10 million. For, and meanwhile, my wife is listening. <laughs> $10, Ten million for four years. <laughs> I said, sure, Bill. I'm a bit, yeah, sure, Bill. Hang up. And she says to me, is the summer house in my name? <laughs> so that was the, okay. uh, I don't okay. know. If <laughs> I got to remind the audience that in the five years before uh, you bought the team, it won, I had to write this one down, the Patriots won just 19 of 80 games. 19. 19 and 61, which yeah, my wife like, reminded me. Exactly. That's why she started to go to games. Uh, and no playoff appearances in the five years. Uh, year you bought the team, you went to the, you qualified for the playoffs, first time in eight years. Since then, obviously we all know, five Super Bowl championships, 15 division championships. But when I look at that turnaround, what, what do you credit for such an incredible reversal of fortune so quickly in terms of attitude, in terms of achievement, in terms of also, as you've said, just how you were adopted in Boston? Well, first of all, we had tremendous support from the family. Our team had never sold out. And yeah. It had a worse record, which my <laughs> wife reminded me. But the games used to be blacked out. So I said to the fans, you know, all of you, and, and it was good in a way that, you know, sometimes in life and in business, every negative can be a positive if you manage it properly. And, and the Patriots had never sold out in 34 years. So the games were always blacked out, the home games in New England, which is nuts because it's like a 
three-hour advertisement when, when you can do it. So uh, my eldest son, uh, Jonathan, and myself, we made 90 speeches in the first 70 days and asked people to buy season tickets. And in the first day after we bought it, there was a snowstorm. 6,000 people came down to Worcester. I mean, Foxborough. <laughs> and, 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 and bought tickets. And the fans were great. But in the end, any of you running businesses know that everyone, everyone's looking for what your culture is and what your values are. And, you know, are you going to stand by them? And with us, it's simple. We try to collect good people, encourage them to take bis- risks and be bold. And if they've taken risks and it hasn't worked out right, but they've done what's in the best interest of their company or been very logical, we encourage them to do that because most people are going to try to play safe all the time. And then, you know, you need your special people who are outside of the box, who do things differently, and sometimes whose personalities are quirky, (laughs) but they have a special talent. Um, No, and, you know, any... The kind of business we're in is a business of egos and a business that who gets the credit. And in any business, and I, you know, division from within can become the biggest enemy. And I I learned that in our paper and packaging company as we're selling product throughout the world. We're competing against big companies, public companies who you know, within their companies, one side doesn't want the other side to do well because they'll go get ahead of them in promotion. or the, And we always took advantage of those inefficiencies in the market to our benefit. Well, it's the same thing when you're running a football team. You know, you have personnel people, you have coaches. Very often the coach will say, well, the personnel people didn't get me the right people. And the personnel people will say, well, the coach didn't play the proper people at the proper time or they don't have the right system. It's excuses always. And so the real trick is how you get everybody on the same page and and force egos who sometimes have problems working with another one another. And you see it in your own businesses or with colleagues uh, that you have in your company. If you can get people to check their ego at the door and put team first, whatever the team may be, you know, and then once you have it going, having continuity. You know, I find that people make changes so often because they don't like things. And one of the disciplines I've always had is I never make a change unless I know I have something better to put in its place. But I never make change for change's sake. Well, let's talk about that because people will know that um, Bill Belichick, he's 17 years. Uh, A- 18, 18, 18, 18, 18. Um, he came in, uh, I read in Sports Illustrated once in an inter- interview that he was the combination in some respects of your two previous coaches, Bill Parcells and Pete Carroll. And Look that he you. was. You did your homework. <laughs> I don't have another job, actually. Um, so Bill Parcells, tough, New Jersey. Uh, 
uh, and obsessively controlled. Uh, and Pete Carroll had the loyalty, tremendously respectful of you, respectful of the franchise. And that Belichick, even though seen as sort of a bit grumpy, that he was sort of the middle way between them two, that he has both the loyalty and the toughness. What do you think has made it work, as you just said, in, a, in an industry, in, a, in an environment where people change so quickly now in terms of coaching? Well, when I hired him, uh, people told me I shouldn't. I mean, it, you know, we had to build a stadium. We, we needed goodwill from the public. We needed people who interviewed well and were gracious. Um, uh, and people sent me tapes of him from Cleveland. And in his five years in Cleveland, you know, he had a losing record for the five years. Myra probably was not happy about that. Actually, Myra and he got along pretty well, actually. Uh, no, um, but he was a man that, you know, in life, whether you're picking your life partner or your key managers in your company, you can look at the curriculum vitae, you can do all these things, but the simpatico of connection, what, because what's right for me might not be right for you. Uh, and, and I really believe we have a system in all our companies where people are free to do what they do and not be encumbered by corporate BS um, if they're really good and have substance. We create environments where people can flourish if they're good at what they do. And, you know, we're, we're, we're very lucky. I mean, I, his intellect and knowledge. And, and then also, by the way, picking up a quarterback with the 199th pick. and the, Just think about the draft which just occurred and what went on in these first few rounds. For those of you who are football fans, you see how people traded so much value just to get up and get a quarterback. And here was a guy who was the last pick in the sixth round. So all these gurus who we spend millions of dollars in scouting and everything, but in the end, when you're running your businesses, you need to look at the people who have heart and, and qualities that you can relate to that come together. How, how everybody missed him is just it's really amazing. Of course, we're talking about Tom Brady and 199th pick, last pick in the sixth round. Um, you recently told Andrew Kramer on HBO that when you picked him, he, uh, he told you, thank you so much for picking me, and I'm the best investment this franchise has ever made. Well, and, and, and that's proven to be pretty true. The uh, exact quote was, it was, he had been drafted, and he was coming down the steps of the old Foxborough Stadium, and it was a real beanpole, skinny, skinny. Uh, pre Giselle. Uh -huh. <laughs> pre Giselle. <laughs> There's a lot preachers out. <laughs> He's carrying a pizza box under his arm, and he came over and said, "Mr. Kraft, I'm your six-round draft." And I said, "I know who you are." And he looked me in the eye, and he said, "I'm the best decision your organization has ever made." That was 2000, the year 2000. He didn't play that year, and then he's 
came in in the third game of the 2001 season. And, but the way he said it, I, I called my eldest son. I said, you won't believe it. We, we had just given Drew Bledsoe a $100 million contract for <laughs> seven years, and we had two other... He was the fourth quarterback on our depth chart. What makes him... Your sons have described him in interviews as your fifth son. Um, what, what makes him so special, not just as a player, but as a man? He is one of the special human beings. Is not, I don't know if, I mean, New York fans or NFL fans can hate him, which I understand. But as a human being, he is nicer than anyone. He's the most genuine, nice, hardworking person. To, you know, when you get in the huddle and you've got to lead guys from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, and have their respect. You can't be a pretty boy married to Giselle. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a negative, if anything. And he commands the respect because he works so hard. Everything he does, you know, well, it, it's funny. This year, think about it. We, last year, the rookies who came into the locker room, so they were like seven or eight or six when he started playing so they come into the locker room they see Tom Brady you know it's he knows how to connect with them and make them feel comfortable but what he shows them he's in there before they're there and he leaves later and he watches more he works harder and he does the extra things do you think uh you know, when you guys won this year and you were in the celebration after and you said uh, you said that the fourth championship had been sweeter, but that the fifth was even sweeter because of the year. Unequivocally the sweetest. But tell me why and say, and is it, have you let, is there any still a little bit of Ill, Ill will there in terms of how Tom was treated with Deflategate? Have you forgiven for how, what, the, what happened with the league? Well, um, I don't hold grudges, but I also don't forget anything. Uh, and, uh, you know, envy and jealousy are incurable diseases. And um, I understand why people, uh, I mean, if I had never won a Super Bowl, this I'm going into my 24th season as an owner. I mean, I'm passionate about owning a, having the privilege of owning a football team in my hometown. And if I hadn't won, I would be so angry at our folks and think about what can I do to do it. So our competitors, I understand how they brought pressure on the league office to be very strong and not compromise in an issue that was nonsense and foolishness. Um, but what was really cool is, you know, think about it. He didn't play the first four games, which is 25% of the season. The good news is he took no wear and tear on his body. And the good news, we were privileged to win three and one. Um, but then to come back, how many people in here actually saw the Super Bowl? <laughs> oh, that's so, you know, 
Who the young lady? <laughs> the young lady. The no, I was just with Arthur Blank uh, a couple hours ago, and he's great. And you know, I understand their disappointment, but they got a heck of a team. But the the young lady who was here, where is she? Who right there? You were saying how you felt at halftime. You know, with three minutes to go in the third. I mean, you would. Whatever team you're for, there are a lot of happy anti-Patriot fans. <laughs> but with three minutes to go in the third quarter, we had a 0.04% chance to win, 99.6% chance to lose. And to come back after everything that had happened, <clears throat> you know, it, it's a great lesson for the millennials. I don't know how many we have in this room, but... <laughs> how important hard work, perseverance, uh, never giving up, and hanging in there and keep coming back. You know, that was the story of this Super Bowl. And we all stay together in tough times. And it's, it's really tough. Let's talk about um, another friend who's in the news quite a bit these days, um, the president, Donald Trump. Um, you've known him for years. Uh, he actually gave you a shout-out today at the Air Force Academy and the Patriots. Yeah. Well, then I'll tell you something now <laughs> that you say that. As I was flying to come here today, I get a call uh, just as we're landing at LaGuardia, and it was the White House. And he had, I guess, the Air Force Academy. Yep. And their team won a big bowl, and it, so they wanted to say hello, so I invited them all. And their coach to a game. Well, I'm sure, uh, I hope they know that now. You're going to a game. Uh, tell us, tell us. You've known him for a long time. Tell us how that friendship has developed over the years. Well, um, I, I've known the president uh, for over 25 years. I never did any business. It was just a social relationship. Um, and by the way, I should say. One of the things for me, and, and I think is less of that in the world today in business, is building relationships, you know, especially with iPhones and texting. A lot of things are one way. And I really, I really, actually, I think it's impacted Washington because there's not the discussion and the empathy and understanding people's point of view that's different than yours. And the only way you change things is to convince people to do what you think is right, but you can't do that if, if you're only one way. Anyhow, that... Um, but I've known uh, Donald for that period of time. Um, I, I uh, actually had the privilege of going to his wedding to, with Melania, um, about 11, 12 years. Bill and Hillary Clinton were sitting at the table next to me. Just oh, they remember for the record. <laughs> well, I remember it because it's. And um, you know, when uh, the only bad deal I've had my whole life is when my wife, a blessed memory, died of ovarian cancer. You know, over 13, 14 months, and um, he flew up to the funeral with Melania. They came to my home, and he called me once a week for a year and invited me to things. And that was the darkest period of my life. 
and I'm a pretty strong person, but I was, my kids thought I was going to die. And there were five or six people who were great to me, and he was one of them. And loyalty and friendship trumps politics for me. And um, relationships, how, um, how I've, if I've had any modicum of success, it's because I've had good relationships and people trusted me. And so I always remember the people who were good to me in my most vulnerable time. And he was in that category. I know he, he, he does things or says things that sometimes, I, you know, he doesn't mean everything he says. But I'm privileged to know that. But people who don't know him maybe don't see the better side. But I'll tell you one thing. He's very hardworking. He really, what we have to do in this country is help working class people and poor people more than anything. We're, you know, Michael spoke of what, how privileged we all are to live here and anyone who's emigrated here um, understands that. And um, I really believe that he wants to make this country better and, and he's grown in the job. I've seen it, too, because, well, you know, for me, it's like having a high school buddy or fraternity brother become president of the state. It's, it's weird, in a way. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's cool, and I want to do anything I can to help him help this country. And, and I really, I, I don't believe that he is portrayed properly, and... So a lot of people don't see him the right way. And part of it is self-inflicted with the things he's, he, some of the style he uses. But I really hope that things will be much better three to six months from now. You talked about uh, some of the divide in America. You're, you live 15 minutes now from where you grew up. Um, you are openly... Uh, you know, you know your neighbors. You walk the streets. You still drink Dunkin' Donuts coffee, you say. Every morning. Every morning. <laughs> You're, in many ways, the very embodiment of the American dream. Oh. But what do, you, what do you say to the people out there and, and picking up on what helped elect him to people who feel so cut off from that, so disenfranchised, so disempowered, left out, left behind? How, where, how do we begin healing that divide? How can he help you? Well, it's sort of like building a team or building a business. I mean, you, you get people together of different backgrounds and ways of thinking and mold them with their strengths. The sad part of, you know, I was thinking when I was a kid growing up, you wanted the news, you, you watched CBS, ABC, NBC, and you got the news. Today, you really have to go to CNN and Fox, or Bloomberg, um, yes. uh, I guess. <laughs> yes, right, <you> Michael? <laughs> the, the old Medford uh, Mustangs coming out. Uh, uh, but, you know, that's sad. And, and it's what's going on. It, it's actually, I'm, I'm really disheartened by seeing the partisanship that doesn't open a door to put America first rather than our parochial, because we're really competing against the rest of the world. America's a team 
competing globally. And we need to, we can't have that division from within. And we have it. And never in my lifetime have I seen the divide as great as it is now. And I think all of us in this room and those of us who are privileged to um, be in a position of influence have to do the best we can to build bridges. And, you know, I tell my sons, you can't have enough friends in this world. And you got to try to relate to people of all backgrounds. The people who clean the office, we talk to them the same way we talk to the bank president. And that's very important. And it just doesn't go on in the political community. And, and it's really disheartening. Um, and you know what I might say? It, actually, and it comes back to sports teams, sports teams and music are the things that create a sense of community in today's world more than anything. And I'm, after we were privileged to win the Super Bowl, you know, Boston's a city of 600,000 people. And 36 hours after we won, in the rain and drizzle and then partial snow, and we had a million and a half people come to the streets of Boston in this world of openness, you know, with bad people running around, they all came to celebrate our team. And what I neglected to tell you is that that's the thing that brought my wife around because she was a great philanthropist and volunteer and she saw the power of sport doing that. And the way sports and music bring people of different backgrounds together, we somehow have to do that with Washington. Um, That's the truth as a former head of Washington. Um, there's something else that uh, you've said brings people together. And I, and I also want to point out Michael here. Uh, and this is an odd one. You learn a lot of things in these interviews. Sneakers. <laughs> yeah. He's wearing sneakers too. You're wearing sneakers. I watched a video with you where you're saying that you're kind of a bit of a, a sneaker head. Sneaker oh, head. You, you watched that. Wow. I did. I watched, uh, I watched the sneakerhead video. But uh, tell me a little bit about, about sneakers and bringing people together. Well, actually, it helped me get street cred in the locker room, but I didn't do it <laughs> for that. Um, I just I um, have a, actually, it's an old football injury. I have a bone spur, and it's really uncomfortable wearing shoes. So I, I started wearing sne sneakers. I love Air Force Ones, and I happened to, I got Mark Parker, who's the CEO of Nike. He came and spoke at an event in Boston. And, you know, I just told, he was amazed to see me wearing them. And uh, it was good advertising. You know, I had a suit on, and I was wearing Air Force Ones. He said, why don't we make your, your own line? And we made a deal that I said, okay. And all the revenue from it goes to the Boys and Girls Club of Boston. Um, so <laughs> this, this last version generated a half a million dollars. Wow. It was 100000 a quarter of a million. Uh, and they've been, so I'm doing, I'm comfortable Get a little street cred and get some money for a great charity. Exactly. I think the nickname in that was RKK. Well, the, yeah, the RKK is on the, yeah. What, what, which ones are you wearing? His are much more. 
Um, I want to close this. First of all, this has been such a treat for me, and I think for everyone in the audience. But I just want to close by asking if there was, we've heard what Michael said about looking up to you. If there was one piece of advice you could give to these people, you know, these CEOs who run, who want to take that next step, who are facing challenges, who are grappling with an incredibly rapidly shifting economic environment, political environment, when you look back, what's the one thing you would say that was key to your success, both as a businessman and also as a man? Well, first of all, to be open to all people. I'm a, I, I just, uh, my ADD is kicking in, so I'll just say with Michael, he is really exceptional. He's, he's, he's in effect become my older brother, and we hang a certain amount, but he is so capable. I admire people who are focused and do a great job. And think about, you know, there's a little bit of an age gap. He's pretty much older than I am. <laughs> So you're, but I'm open to that. I'm, you know, um, it's from liking the Dalai Lama to people from Pakistan to people from Saudi Arabia to people from South America, Asia, being open to everyone. And I, I think we've become too closed as a society and we get set in our ways and don't be, don't be afraid of what's coming and be open to it. And the most important thing is what I say to our key managers or coaches or anyone, don't be afraid to fail. Really, you know, live your big dream, whatever it is. And, you know, as long as you're blessed with health and you can do the things you love, go for it. Don't. Don't play between the 40-yard lines, because that's going to get boring. Um, and I think most people talk a good game, but life is about execution. And the only way you can execute properly, you, you probably have to fail along the way, but you keep coming back, and sooner or later it'll, it'll come out. If, but you've got to really be driven to do that, and being open-minded to all people and going after what you really want. That's been the story of, I try to have my big dreams and just keep going for it. Thank you so much for being here. This was fantastic. Thank you. Go from Whistler. Thank you for listening to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy. You can find me on Twitter at Megan Murp. Business Week is on Twitter at at BW. And Debrief is available on iTunes, the brand new Bloomberg app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.